0: Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of this time together. We thank you for this book and for how it speaks so pointedly into the times in which we find ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us tonight, that as we talk and listen and read, that you would do your work in our hearts to help transform us to help cut through the fog of this world and speak forth the truth of your life-giving gospel. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the music that we were listening to uh, is a song called The Lament of Eustace Scrub. (laughs) And Eustace Scrub, of course, is the character that we've been talking about. And one of the things that is another... Beautiful example of how continuing, continually culturally relevant the Chronicles of Narnia are is that this group, the Oh Hellos, which are pretty well known, they were actually just in Charleston uh, within the past six months, and they write a lot of songs about Narnia and the characters in Narnia. But the other thing that's interesting is there's another sort of indie folk singer named Sarah Sparks, who's really good, who also has a song called Eustace Scrub. So I don't think C.S. Lewis ever could have imagined that people would be writing songs about Eustace Scrub, but they are, and one of the things that's really cool is the Oh Hellos are really popular with people, kids that are high school, college age, um, and they are uh, big fans. The Oh if you were listening to that, um, they have a sound that's a little bit like Mumford and Son, which, in case you've been under a rock, um, that's one of the most popular groups in the world right now. And they were just in Charleston Monday night for a sold out concert here. But listen to the words. The words of this song are uh oh. I don't know what that means. Okay, I don't know what that means, but that's all right. So listen to these words. Remember, Eustace Scrubb, the whole song is about Eustace being changed into a dragon in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It says, Brother, forgive me. We both know I'm the one to blame. When I saw my demons, I knew them well and welcomed them. But I'll come around someday. Father, have mercy. I know I've gone astray. When I saw my reflection, it was a stranger beneath my face. That's when he looks in the water and sees he's become a dragon. But I'll come around someday. When I touch the water, they tell me I could be set free. So I'll come around someday. And what happens is Aslan invites Eustace into this pool of water that's the beginning of his transformation, which, of course, is laden with baptismal Symbolism. They wrote the song, this song, after, um, before they did the movie. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, yes. So it is, um, it's just very cool. So, uh, apropos of nothing other than that. So, uh, we are going to jump right in, and we have, again, so much to talk about. And uh, one of the things that you probably notice is every week I start at the beginning. And you may think, why is he doing that? Why don't we just start with where we are? But the reason I'm doing it is because this book is written sequentially. And if you don't have, if you're not bearing in mind actively all of what's come before, you you, you don't get the resonance and the richness of what's going on. So um, just to go quickly through the beginning part, book six or book four, as we've talked about, uh, and again, dedicated to one of the Inklings' children, <laughs> and again, these three levels that the book is working on. We've mostly been on the riveting children's story level, um, although we've picked out a lot of themes that probably the children were not picking up on, but we are entering into the part that's really fun, um, where he's going to be playing with the, the allegory of the cave. Um, and we've already talked some about what he's saying about truth, but he's going to really go there in the next couple of chapters. So it's very exciting, or at least it is to me. Uh, so I want us to, again, say our verse because this is so important. Part of the whole reason this book exists is because of the Inklings thinking through what this verse means, and the whole idea of living intentionally and trying to speak truth into the culture. So let's say this together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And one of the things I want to just reiterate is practice these things means that you're doing this proactively. You're not just thinking, isn't that nice? You're actually doing this and trying to make a habit of doing this. Uh, the origins of the stories, we talked about these, were formed in Lewis beginning when he was a boy, little bits and pieces of them, and then they came together in the years after World War II. And we talked about the characters, Aslan, of course, the great lion, who is uh, his, Lewis's idea of if there were a world like Narnia that God needed to redeem from evil, how would he do it? And Aslan is the Christ figure in that. And then, of course, Prince Caspian, major character in the book called Prince Caspian, not surprisingly. Uh, And then also major character in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And we met him very early in this book as an old man. And then he goes away on this voyage. But, of course, the quest is for his lost son. Now... Also, we haven't really talked about this, but it's not an accident that we have somebody looking for a lost son here. Uh, you might remember there's some parables about looking for the lost son and the lost sheep and all of that. And you see here how Aslan orchestrates this great scheme to try to save the lost son. We haven't even gotten into that yet, but that's coming. And then Eustace Scrub. Um, And that great first one, one of the greatest opening lines of any book ever, Um, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. So great. So as we run through these themes, I want you to just take note of how much is going on in this short little book. It really is absolutely astounding. Even if you go to the bookstore today and get what looks like a pretty good self-help book, it's probably just going to have one or two themes. But there are, and we're not even talking about all the themes. These are just the most major ones that appear, at least in my judgment, in the chapters. So this whole beginning part about Experiment House and the progressive nature of education and the whole idea of we are so much smarter than any generation that ever lived before us that we should just throw out the accumulated wisdom of the human race and start over again because we know better than they do and so we will we will be bright and we'll have a brave new world uh, if we discharge all of this stuff that weighs us down from the past and just focus on what's current and progressive um, Lewis obviously thought that view was anathema to him. So um, he rails about Experiment House, and he's going to come back, this theme's going to come back in the last chapter in a really wonderful way. Um, and then Outcast is protagonist. This, again, very radical for England in the 1940s. Um, a bullied teenage girl as the major character in a book, not something you would expect. Um, Eustace changed by Aslan, Uh, From the very beginning of the book, we see that Eustace has been changed by encountering Aslan. And we're going to watch him in the story as he struggles to live into that transformation. And Lewis does a brilliant job, I think, of showing how Eustace's heart is changed. And he wants to do right, but he's got a little bit of Romans 7 going on um, of wanting to do right, but not always choosing or having the will to do it. Um, it's very real. Uh, Also, this vulnerability leading to fellowship, that encounter at the beginning of the book, where Eustace chooses to take a big risk relationally. And he takes that big risk of trusting his deepest secret to this girl who could have turned on him. But the fact that he did that is what makes everything else in this story possible. And then the whole idea of Aslan calling or calling Aslan and sort of the way that the children think that they're calling out to Aslan to save them while at the same time Aslan is calling them into Narnia. It's just beautiful. Then the next part, um, you've probably picked up one of my favorite themes in this whole book is the there is no other stream. I think he just does that brilliantly of the the water of life being protected by the lion, and Aslan telling Jill, if you're thirsty, you will die unless you drink from the stream. It's just so well done. And then sin and its consequences. Again, Lewis does a masterful job with this. Big sin, little sin, whether it's pushing somebody off a cliff or being irritable, both of those sins have major consequences that set the quest Back and get it off course Um, and then as one's call and task the idea that God does not uh, call us to things that aren't important that the, the calling that God wants to have on our lives is to do things that make a difference for his kingdom they may not be glorious things that bring glory to us But hopefully they will be things that bring glory to him. Um, It's not the the proof rock kind of idea of measuring out your life in coffee spoons and being very careful. It's more living on the edge. Um, And then the signs. Aslan telling them that the signs are critical to the quest, that they can forget everything else. The signs are the only things that matter. And the signs, of course, are... Uh, the equivalent for us, scripture. And Lewis uses language right out of Deuteronomy 6 when he's talking about this. That's just like when we are, um, the Israelites are instructed to talk about the Lord's commandments when they rise up in the morning as they walk by the road, when they go to bed, um, to put them on their door frames, all of those things. And Aslan is, uh, Lewis puts those words into Aslan's mouth here and tells Jill that she must remember these signs and if she forgets them, the quest will fail. There's no doubt about that. And that she's in Aslan's country and it's clear there, but when she's in the fog of the rest of Narnia, she's going to have a harder time remembering and so she has to discipline herself to remember these signs to protect herself from peril. And then the whole idea of identity and courage of Eustace standing up in this scary parliament of owls, where they're plucked out of their warm, cozy beds in the castle in the middle of the night and flown on the back of these frightening owls um, into this abandoned belfry that's full of two, two two and a half to three foot tall owls who are all talking to each other. Um, This is about as scary a situation as you can imagine yourself getting into. Remember, owls are birds of prey. They have no idea what these owls are like. And yet Eustace stands up right at the beginning and says, I am the king's man, and I belong to Caspian, and if this parliament of owls is any kind of plot against him, I have no part in it. It's very bold, and it's a great example of his showing that he is determined to stand up for who he is in relationship to Aslan and Caspian. So, yes? Uh, I was reading um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to some neighbor children across the street, and you know that um, C.S. Lewis puts owls in the opening pages of of, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right, there are owls all over the place in Lewis, so it's not an accident that they're in Harry Potter either. So um, again, sins, large and small, have consequences, that theme continuing. Comfort is the enemy of the quest. This is going to come up over and over and over again. And I think part of the reason it comes up so much is that Lewis thought that was one of the biggest dangers that he saw going forward uh, in the culture of England and the Western world. That the more that people became addicted to comfort, they were going to not want to live boldly for the gospel. They would just, uh, as the, I think this word came in the 80s, the idea of cocooning, um, that you just stay at home and cocoon. Um, Now it's, you know, binging on Netflix or whatever it might be. But this idea of comfort, comfort's not bad. Lewis is one of the great Christian apologists for comfort and pleasure. And he says, God is the author of all of them, the warm fire, the delicious food, um, the beauty of music, that God is the author of all of those, and they are to be received with thanks. But when they get in the way of our serving God, when those become the goal and the end of the quest in themselves, getting the comforts, that that is when we are in deep spiritual danger. And then the whole idea of to carry out Aslan's call, we need people very different from us. This is a great theological lesson on the truth that is expressed in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ that the body of Christ needs every member of it. We all have different gifts and if we don't have all of the gifts, we won't be able to do the quest to which we've been called. And you see this with Puddleglum. Puddleglum is about as different from an upper middle class British school child, as you could get, he's green. He's green. I mean, really, green. And he has hair that looks like Spanish moss. He's really tall. He eats weird food. He talks funny. All those kinds of things. And yet, without him, without him, without deep partnership with him, the children not only would fail in the quest, but would have died. So it's really important to let that sink in. Lucy's is making, again, a point that was radical for the time period in which this was written. I'm a little confused as to why it, the quest um, includes the two children because the children didn't help. They didn't really do anything. Oh, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, I mean, they're just, there. Basically to grow spiritually is what it says. Well, they are there to grow spiritually, but they're also there because, well, you'll see when we get farther in. Okay. Um, but part of what's going on here, Lewis almost always uses children as protagonist in Narnia, and it's not because it's children's stories. He's doing that because of what Jesus says about children and the idea that in all of our sophistication, um, we very often become jaded and cynical. And the children are able to see and hear Aslan and not say, oh, that's a figment of my imagination. Wow. Um, so there, there's a whole thing with that going on um, that we will get to. Right. So, yeah. All right. And safety and why... Oh, sorry. How did I get onto that already? All right. So the reality of evil and its seductive beauty... We live at an age that wants to say nothing is evil. Everything is just a choice. Whatever you want, so long as you want it sincerely. If it is your truth, speak your truth loudly and dare anyone else to oppose you. And Lewis will have none of that. Um, he is a great believer in absolute truth and the idea that there is absolute truth that's not only wired into the human heart, but wired into the cosmos, and that when we rebel against it, we do that at our peril. This is actually the same theme. I'm not going to go very far on this. But if you haven't read um, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, I really encourage you to read that book. It's not the easiest book to read, but it is a brilliant illustration of this same idea. Because in that story, the protagonist who's what they would call the Ubermensch, sort of the new Superman, who's been liberated from all the shackles of religion and fairy tales and all that kind of stuff, and knows that through bold action and courage, you can transform the world. And he sees these women that he thinks are a blight on society, this pawnbroker and this other woman, and he decides the world would be better off if those women were not part of it. And so he kills them. And he says, you know, I'm making the world a better place. There's no such thing as right or wrong. It's not bad to murder people. And what happens is he starts feeling guilt. And he's like, what's that? And he, he begins slowly to go crazy because he's being driven crazy by this guilt because of what he's done. And he is saved by a prostitute. Again, who did Jesus hang out with? Um, a prostitute who reads to him about the story of Lazarus, Dostoevsky actually quotes almost an entire chapter of the Gospel of John in Crime and Punishment. So if you haven't read that or hadn't read it since high school when you suffered through it, go read it again, (laughs) because it is very worthwhile. And then two, safety and wise counsel. Uh, We live in such an independent age, and we live in a country that prizes self-reliance and independence more so probably than any other culture on this earth. And one of the major themes here is that any one of the three on the quest, whether it's Jill or Eustace or Puddleglum, left to their own devices would have been in serious trouble. And they rely on each other's advice and counsel. And through that and through some promises that they make to each other, it ends up that they are much better off than they would have been if they'd only had one person's opinion. So this whole idea of being wise in your own eyes, which this flows into, of thinking that you don't need anybody's help. I've got this figured out. It's me and God against the world. Thank you so much. All the rest of you people can go home. Um, that idea and that whole way of thinking, again, for Lewis, is antithetical to what the gospel teaches. So that is going to be an idea that keeps showing up. And then, again, comfort is the enemy of the quest. And then last week, um, these themes, the danger of naivete in the face of evil. Um, I need number four. Oh, We're well, still going to get them. I, are, We're going to go all through, through okay, all four of them. So um, the danger tonight... <laughs> I'm so glad you're paying such attention to this. That's really good. It It gladdens the teacher's heart. Um, So the danger of naivete in the face of evil. This is a slightly different thing than thinking about the reality of evil. Naivete in the face of evil is when you confront evil just thinking, oh, well, that's not going to hurt me or I can deal with that. It's really not so bad. And it's sort of the whole idea that you see in scripture where scripture tells us to flee temptation. Flee, the word used for flee in scripture is the same word that you like run out of a burning building because you thought you were about to die. It's a very strong word. But the problem for most of us is we think, well, I'm a pretty strong person. I can handle being around some temptation. I know my limits. I can do this. This is all reasonable. Well, that is naivete in the face of evil. When you think you can rely on your own strength in the face of evil, the only way to deal with evil is either to um, protect yourself completely against it or to go in an all-out assault on it. So this idea of compromising with evil or hanging out with evil and hoping it's not going to affect you um, is not going to work. And so this whole thing, you know, the children are so interested in getting to the warm bed and the hot fire and the delicious meal that they don't realize that they are the delicious meal. And so uh, they are naive and they trust this woman, even though there, there should be alarm bells going off uh, all around them. And Puddlegum tries to tell them that they will not listen. Um, And part of that's because they're naive. Part of that is because they are willful. Um, The second thing, the slippery slope of neglecting the signs. Jill neglects the signs. And at one point, she says, bother the signs, Um, which is not really a great thing to say. Uh, I would not encourage any of you to say anything like that. We don't want lightning to strike. Um, But basically what happens here is because they get so absorbed in their comfort and their own needs that they forget about what Aslan has told them, that nothing else matters except the signs and repeating them. And so they get confused about the signs. And as a result of that, they argue with Puddleglum and in order to keep the peace, they make this compromise where they go into Harfang and remember Harfang, remember we talked about what that word means, that um, a harfang is actually a predatory owl that swallows its prey whole, um, which is, of course, the name of the castle of the gentle giants. Um, Just because somebody has a nice name, that does not mean you should trust them. So this whole idea of compromise um, is so important because what happens here is that because they get into the situation, they shouldn't be in Harfang in the first place, but they get into the situation, Puddleglum is tempted and drinks more than he should, and they end up in a situation where they are eating a talking stag, which, as Lewis says, for us would be like eating a roasted baby. It's just horrific. And under any normal circumstances, if you had walked up to the children and said, Would you like to eat talking stag? They would have said, no, how horrible. But because they have compromised, they've gotten into a situation where the unimaginable seems normal. And then the next part, the importance of conviction and true repentance. Um, This whole idea is key to the story because when they realize that they've screwed up, when they look out the window of the room that they're trapped in in the giant's castle and they know that they are on the menu for dinner and they look out and they see in giant letters, impossible to miss, under me, right across from the castle and realize that was the sign that they completely missed even though they were literally crawling in the letters that spell (laughs) under me. Um, They don't say... Well, Aslan should have made it easier. Or if it hadn't been snowing, we wouldn't have screwed up so bad. Or if Pubboglom was a better guide, he would have made us stop. Or if Jill wasn't so stupid and arrogant, there's none of that. There's none of that. It's all they're cut to the heart, just like we were talking about in church tonight from Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches um, the gospel. It says, Those who heard, were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And we don't have them being baptized here, but they do repent. And you can see it's genuine, that it's a change of heart. It's that metanoia, change of heart, change of mind. And then again, this whole comfort as the enemy of the quest. And one of the things that's so interesting is that when they start getting back on track, when they escape from the castle, They suddenly become extremely uncomfortable again. They're in this horrible rock slide. They're turning over and over. Rocks are crashing on them. They're getting hit in the face. They're bleeding, and it smells bad, and they can't breathe, and it's hot and uncomfortable, and they are right in the middle of Aslan's will for them. Now, Joel Osteen would tell you (laughs) that you should be healthy, wealthy, and wise all the time, and that God only wants you to prosper, but the scriptures don't teach that. The scriptures teach that suffering is very often part of the mechanism that God uses to draw us to himself, and Lewis is going to have more to say about that, and then there's this little quotation from Screwtape about how the comfortable little steps of falling away are the best way to tempt someone away from God. That you don't need spectacular sins like murder. That um, being a card sharp is just as good. Um, And that the small, uh, I love the way he says this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without (coughs) signposts. So that brings us to the themes in chapter 10 and 11. And if you haven't read these chapters, oh, please go read them. They're so great. Um, but the the first thing that I want to talk about is the vital role of encouraging fellowship. And then we're going to talk about scripture and layers of meaning. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what is reality. And we're going to have our first introduction to Plato's cave that we're really going to hit our stride on next week, and then we're going to talk a little bit about trusting Aslan and the signs. So the first thing, the vital role of encouraging fellowship. And this is particularly important for us to hear in our culture because we are not very good at this. Because we are so independent-minded, we are uh, not very good at being vulnerable. Uh, We're not very good at the scriptural admonition to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And it's not so much that we're not willing to bear people's burdens, but no one wants to talk about what their burdens are to let anyone else bear them, because that would be embarrassing. It would make it look like I'm not self-sufficient. So this idea of bearing burdens is integral to the gospel and hugely important to Lewis. When we talked about Charles Williams, um, probably two months ago this idea of burden bearing was right at the heart of his understanding of the gospel so let me just read this little passage they were so sad well okay so they've fallen down just some context they're in the underworld and they've um, been told that they're in the underworld they're going to the queen of the dark realm which that would inspire terror of course and then the light comes up and there are these hundred earthmen that are all around and the description is just brilliant, and it talks about how they're all different sizes, but the one thing that they have in com- in common is that they all look unutterably sad. So <coughs> so sad, so lifeless and wan that even in the midst of her terror, Jill wants to try to cheer them up because she feels so bad. She feels so bad for these people that are like trying to lead her off into captivity. So anyway, that's where this starts. They were so sad, after the first glance, Joel almost forgot to be afraid of them. She felt she would like to cheer them up. "'Well,' said Puddleglum, rubbing his hands, "'this is just what I needed. "'If these chaps don't teach me to take a serious view of life, <laughs> "'I don't know what will. <laughs> "'Look at that fellow with the walrus mustache "'or the one with the get-up,' said the leader of the Earthmen. "'There was nothing else to be done. "'The three travelers scrambled to their feet and joined hands.' one wanted the touch of a friend's hand at a moment like that and the earthmen came all around them patting on large soft feet on which some had 10 toes some 12 and others none march said the warden and march they did it was worse for jill than for the others because she hated dark underground places and when as they went on the cave got lower and narrower and when at last the light bearer stood aside And the gnomes, one by one, stooped down, all except the very smallest ones, and stepped into a little dark crack and disappeared. Jill felt she could bear it no longer. I can't go in there. I can't. I can't. I won't, she panted. The Earthmen said nothing, but they all lowered their spears and pointed them at her. Steady, Pole," said Puddleglum. "Those big fellows wouldn't be crawling in there if it didn't get wider later on. And there's one thing about this underground work: we shan't get any rain." <laughs> oh, you don't understand! I can't!" wailed Jill. "Think how I felt on that cliff," Pole said. "Scrub, you go first, Puddleglum, and I'll come after her." That's right," said the Marsh wiggle, getting down on his hands and knees. You keep a grip of my heels, Pole, and Scrub will hold on to yours. Then we'll all be comfortable. Comfortable, said Jill. But she got down and they crawled in on their elbows. But at last they came out, hot, dirty, and shaken, into a cave so large that it scarcely seemed like a cave at all. And this is such a beautiful example of the vital role of encouraging fellowship. Jill is terrified. In today's parlance, she's triggered by the situation in which she finds herself. And rather than being made fun of or told to buck up or be strong or whatever, there's no no advice given. They just, they hold her hand. They encourage her verbally. They encourage her by literally holding her all through this dark, narrow passage There is a lot for us to learn here. Um, There is that old adage uh, that someone has said that Christians are the only people who kill their own wounded. And there's a lot of truth to that, that we, we are not very good at walking with people through pain and really difficult circumstances. If we're in pain and really difficult circumstances, we also are usually not very good about inviting others to walk with us through those circumstances. But Lewis is showing us a beautiful example here of the way that fellowship is supposed to work, that there is love that is being expressed here and it's being expressed in very practical ways. And notice there's no thought of saying, well, we'll go on and leave her here. They are a team, they are bonded together and they support one another and literally hold each other through this dark night of the soul, if you will. Right, so, it sounds so much like um, King David's cave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, and some people from St. Michael's went to Abdullah's cave, and you have to go in like through a rabbit hole to get there, and then it's And gargantuan. then it broadens out. Yep. Yep. So there's going to be much more about caves later. Uh, so the second theme, uh, Scripture and Layers of Meaning. This is one of these things, I just love that C.S. Lewis put this in here, because you read it as a children's story, and it's this part is so cool as a children's story, but it is a profound theological commentary, which is just astounding that he manages to do this. So you'll remember in the chapter that they're talking with Prince Rilian while he's under the enchantment. They don't know that he's Rilian yet, they just know he's the knight, the one human that they've met in the dark realm. So they're up in his room talking, and Jill says that they were told um, these signs, and then this is what happens. We had been told to look for a message on the stones of the city ruinous, said Scrub, and we saw the words, under me. The knight laughed even more heartily than before. You were the more deceived, he said. Those words meant nothing to your purpose. Had you but asked my lady, she could have given you better counsel. Uh, For those words are all that is left of a longer script, which in ancient times, as she well remembers, (laughs) expressed this verse. Though under earth and throneless now I be, yet while I lived, all earth was under me. From which it is plain that some great king of the ancient giants who lies buried there, caused this boast to be cut in the stone over his sepulchre. Though the breaking up of some of the stones and the carrying away of others for new buildings and the filling up of cuts with rubble has only left two words that can still be read. Is it not the merriest jest in the world that you should have thought they were written to you? (laughs) This was like cold water down the back to scrub and jill for it seemed to them very likely that the words had nothing to do with their quest at all, and that they had been taken in by a mere accident. Don't you mind him, said Puddleglum, there are no accidents. Our guide is Aslan, and he was there when the giant king caused the letters to be cut, and he knew already all things that would come of them, including this. Now, this is a great commentary about scripture, and particularly about prophecy that has a present fulfillment, a future fulfillment, and then maybe a symbolic fulfillment. And a great example of this is Psalm 22. Psalm 22, written about a thousand years uh, before Jesus's crucifixion, is the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Psalm 22 also describes in detail someone being crucified, even though a thousand years before Christ's time, crucifixion hadn't yet been invented. It talks about casting lots for the person's clothing, piercing their hands and their feet. And it is a Psalm written by David probably about some events that were going on at that time, but also in the knowledge of God and the inspiration of scriptures designed for a future fulfillment at the time of Christ's crucifixion and then designed for a symbolic later understanding of this being part of the uh, proof of the plan of God over time. And we can have a, a whole long discussion about the way that scripture works like that. But Lewis does such a beautiful job of puddle glum in one sentence um, expressing this great theology of scripture because basically what he's saying is that there are no accidents in scripture that Christ is our guide and that Christ the co-eternal consubstantial member of the Trinity was there when every event happened when the scriptures were written and fully intended these multiple layers of meaning that may have evolved over time. So it is uh, a great statement about scripture, but it's also a great statement about trust in Aslan, not to because you think that there's some natural explanation that can explain away something in scripture, not to think that because of that, that suddenly it's not true. With a capital T anymore. That there are there are different levels of truth. So uh, Lewis, I think, does a brilliant job with handling this and pointing out here in the midst of this very difficult situation where they're with this knight and they don't really know what he's going to do, um, that they still need to trust the signs and to trust Aslan. So the third What is reality? Plato's Allegory of the Cave. So they come down into this dark, dark, dark realm where there's only reflected light. And you'll notice there are all kinds of reflected light that Lewis talks about. Sometimes they strike a match and then there's a globe that's illuminated. Um, They go into one cave where there are these weird sort of frightening sounding flabby trees um, that emit light. And then there's also this reflected silvery light that is um, very shadowy um, that you can't really tell what its source is. Remember this particular book and the Planet Narnia Code is the moon. So um, there's a lot of sort of moonlight kind of imagery going on here. But part of what happens is the children, as they spend day after day after day after day after day after day day in this dark realm, and they never see the sun, and they see how huge this dark realm is, that there are these huge cities full of these Earthmen, and there's a sea that they travel on that's full of all of these ships. And they begin to think this is reality. and So we have this little dialogue. Yes, I know, interrupted Puddleglum, and few return to the sunlit lands. The Earthmen are always saying that when you're in the realm below, few return to the sunlit lands. I keep saying it over and over and over again. Puddleglum gets very tired of it. So, yes, I know, interrupted Puddleglum, and few return to the sunlit lands. You need not say it again. You are a chap of one idea, aren't you? Oh, whatever will become of us, said Jill despairingly, "'Now don't you let your spirits down, Pol,' said the Marshwiggle. "'There's one thing you've got to remember. "'We're back on the right lines. "'We were to go under the ruined city, and we are under it. "'We're following the instructions again.' "'Presently they were given food, flat, flabby cakes of some sort, "'which had hardly any taste. "'And after that they gradually fell asleep. "'But when they woke, everything was just the same. "'The gnome still rowing, the ship still gliding on, still dead blackness ahead. How often they woke and slept and ate and slept again, none of them could ever remember. And the worst thing about it was that you began to feel as if you had always lived on that ship in that darkness, and to wonder whether sun and blue skies and wind and birds had not been only a dream. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go more into this next week, but There's a handout that is Plato's Allegory of the Cave that even if you are on the beach, um, not doing much work, I would really encourage you to read this because it will enrich not only your understanding of this book, but of a lot of things. Um, But basically, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, this is a good room to kind of imagine this in um, because it's a little bit cave-like. But if you imagine that we have the people on the front row here um, everybody from Ken over to Max, and they were stuck in these chairs, and they were tied into these chairs, and this was a solid wall with no doors in it, and there were no windows over there, only the windows in the back, and that they were tied in these chairs, and their heads were fixed, that so they could not look any way but forward, and they sat like that day and night, day and night, day and night, And they had never been anywhere but there, so far as they could remember. And they noticed after a while that there was a pattern that would happen, that at some point, there would be some illumination that came from behind them. And as they noticed that, they noticed there was a rhythm to that, that the illumination would come, and then it would get brighter, and then it would fade away, and it would be dark again. And then over time, they would notice that perhaps some shadows would come on this wall that they would see. And those shadows might have a particular shape. And that shape might be something that was repeated. For example, if there were people walking by outside or cars or something like that. And they might even give names to those shadows because they could distinguish one type of shadow from another. And so they go on with that kind of existence year after year after decade after decade. And then one day... Amanda gets free. She somehow finds that she can get up. And so she gets up, and she turns around. And we'll pretend that's a door instead of a window. She looks in this light and is just blinded by it because she's never experienced light before. She's only gotten some dim illumination. And she goes out the door, and then she sees people and cars and trees and the sun. And all this. And so she comes running back in and she tells Max and Nancy and DeBose and Ken, and what are they going to say to her? You're crazy. You're crazy! Or cray cray. Um, They're going to say, You are totally out of your mind. What are you talking about? This is reality. This is reality, we know it, it's what we've seen, it's what we've experienced, we've got names for everything. And she's like, no, 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 this is the real world out here. And they will say she's crazy and stamp out that idea. So that that is very loosely what the allegory of the cave says. And so, of course, the, the application of that spiritual things is fairly obvious, that if you believe that this world, the world that Lewis calls Shadowlands, oh wonder where he got that from, um, that Lewis calls Shadowlands, if you believe that that is all there is, then you absolutely deny the possibility that there is anything else. And what Lewis is saying, and we're going to get this um, next time, um, so good, Uh, but I'm not going to get I'm not going to spoil it. But we're, next time, we're going to get the fullness of this. But just for now, the idea that the children are being lulled into thinking that this dark realm is all that exists, and that Aslan is a figment of their imagination, and that the sun and the stars and beauty and all of those things are just figments of their imagination. And then fourthly, this is kind of a long excerpt, but it is so great that I'm going to ask you to indulge me while I read it. Uh, So, trusting Aslan and the signs. So, uh, remember what happens is that the children are with the knight in his room, and he's explained to them that this fit comes on him each night, and that he has to be tied in the silver chair, because otherwise he will escape and commit murder and all sorts of horrible things. So the children are terrified, and they don't really know what to do. So they agree that they're going to stay with the Dark Knight while they're up there, um, but they, they make a pact that no matter what he says, they're not going to interfere because they're terrified what might happen when he gets out of the chair. So this is where we start We may pick up some information, said Puddleglum, and we need all we can get. I'm sure the queen is a witch and an enemy. No joke. And those earthmen would knock us on the head as soon as look at us. There's a stronger smell of danger and lies and magic and treason about this land than I've ever smelled before. We need to keep our eyes and ears open. Puddleglum has a gift of discernment. He really does. Come in, friends, he said. This is the night, glancing quickly up. The fit is not yet upon me. Now I can feel it coming quick. Listen while I'm master of myself. When the fit is upon me, it well may be that I shall beg and implore you with entreaties and threatenings to loosen my bonds. They say I do. I shall call upon you by all that is most dear and most dreadful. But do not listen to me. Harden your hearts and stop your ears. "'for while I am bound, you are safe. "'But if once I were up and out of this chair, "'then first would come my fury, "'and after that,' he shuddered, "'the change into a loathsome serpent.' Mm -hmm. "'There's no fear of our loosing you,' said Puddleglum. "'We've no wish to meet wild men or serpents either.' Mm -hmm. "'I should think not,' said Scrub and Joel together. "'All the same,' added Puddleglum in a whisper, "'don't let's be too sure. Let's be on our guard.' We've muffed everything else, you know. He'll be cunning, I shouldn't wonder, once he gets started. Can we trust one another? Do we all promise that whatever he says, we don't touch those cords? Whatever he says, mind you. The night groaned. Enchantments, enchantments, the heavy, tangled, cold, clammy web of evil magic. Buried alive. Dragged down under the earth, down into the city blackness. How many years is it? Have I lived ten years or a thousand years in the pit? maggot men all around me. Oh, have mercy, let me out, let me go back. Let me feel the wind and see the sky. There used to be a little pool. When you looked down into it, you could see all the trees growing upside down in the water, all green and below them, deep, very deep, the blue sky. He had been speaking in a low voice. Now he looked up, fixed his eyes upon them, and said loud and clear, Quick, I'm sane now. Every night I am sane. If only I could get out of this enchanted chair, it would last. I should be a man again. But every night they bind me, and so every night my chance is gone. But you are not enemies. I am not your prisoner. Quick, cut these cords. I beseech you to hear me, said the knight, forcing himself to speak calmly. Have they told you that if I am released from this chair, I shall kill you and become a serpent? I see by your faces that they have. It is a lie. It is at this hour that I am in my right mind. It is all the rest of the day I am enchanted. Steady, 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 said the three travelers to one another. Oh, you have hearts of stone, said the knight. What wrongs have I ever done you that you should side with my enemies to keep me in such miseries? Now you can save me. When this hour is past, I shall be witless again, the toy and lapdog. Nay, more likely the pawn and tool of the most devilish sorceress that ever planned the woe of men. And this night, of all nights, when she is away, you take from me a chance that may never come again. This is dreadful. I do wish we'd stayed away until it was all over, said Jill. (laughs) Steady, said Puddleglum. Cunning, isn't he, said Puddleglum. Once and for all, said the prisoner, I adjure you to set me free by all fears and all loves. By the bright skies of overland, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. Oh, cried the three travelers, as though they had been hurt. It's the sign, said Puddleglum. It was the words of the sign, said Scrub more cautiously. Oh, what are we to do? said Jill. It was a dreadful question. What had been the use of promising one another that they would not say on any that they would not on any account set the night free? If they were now to do so the first time, he happened to call upon a name they really cared about. On the other hand, what had been the use of learning the signs if they weren't going to obey them? Yet could Aslan have really meant them to unbind anyone, even a lunatic, who asked it in his name? Could it be a mere accident? Or how if the queen of the underworld knew all about the signs and had made the knight learn this name simply in order to entrap them? "'But then, supposing this was the real sign, "'they had muffed three already. "'They daren't muff the fourth. "'Oh, if only we knew,' said Jill. "'I think we do know,' said Puddleglum. "'Do you mean you think everything will come right "'if we do untie him?' said Scrub. "'I don't know about that,' said Puddleglum. "'You see, Aslan didn't tell Pole what would happen. "'He only told her what to do. "'That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, "'I shouldn't wonder.' But that doesn't let us off. following the sign. They all stood looking at one another with bright eyes. It was a sickening moment. Mm -hmm. All right, said Jill suddenly. Let's get it over. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) They all shook hands. The knight was screaming by now. There was foam on his cheeks. Come on, Scrub, said Puddleglum. He and Scrub drew their swords and went over to the captive. In the name of Aslan, they said, and began methodically cutting the cords. The instant the prisoner was free, he crossed the room in a single bound, seized his own sword, which had been taken from him, and laid on the table and drew it. You first, he cried, and fell upon the silver chair. That must have been a good sword. The silver gave way before its edge like string, and in a moment a few twisted fragments shining on the floor were all that was left. But as the chair broke, there came from it a bright flash, a sound like small thunder. "'and for one moment a loathsome smell. "'Lie there, vile engine of sorcery,' he said, "'lest your mistress should ever use you for another victim.' "'Then he turned and surveyed his rescuers, "'and the something wrong, whatever it was, "'had vanished from his face. "'What?' he cried, turning to Puddleglum. "'Do I see before me a Marshwiggle? "'A real, live, honest Narnian Marshwiggle? "'Oh, so you have heard of Narnia after all,' said Jill.' Had I forgotten it when I was under the spell last night? Well, that and all the other bedevilments are now over. You may well believe that I know Narnia, for I am Rillian, Prince of Narnia, and Caspian the Great is my father. So what do you think the witch was doing, and why was she not there that night? Oh, we're going to come to that. (laughs) That's next week. But one of the things that is so great here is this is a profound theological lesson on the nature of obedience. Mm-hmm. It is all about trusting Aslan, trusting the word, not knowing what the results may be. Remember, they think they may die. And Puddleglom is very clear. You know, They're trying to explain away why they might not have to actually do what this says. And they try very hard to explain it away. And Puddleglom just nails it. And he says, I think we do know. And so he urges them that they need to obey. And then um, Eustace says, well, okay, we'll obey because if we do that, then probably everything will be all right and it's going to be just nice and wonderful. And Poglom says, well, no, it might not be. Aslan made no promise about that. But what he did tell us is this is what we are to do. And it is um, it is profound, and it is a great example of moral courage in the face of danger. Um, something again that is in very short supply in our culture today. So uh, and we're all under a spell too. Yes, exactly. We're all under a spell. We're going to really hammer that next time. So again, um, I've given up trying to make time to talk about the questions. But I do, I do add them to the handout each week. And I hope you'll talk about them either with a friend or just with yourself. Um, but they're, they're, they're important to think about. So the first one, why is encouraging fellowship such an essential element for living into the quest God's plan for our life? Why are we so often tempted to go it alone? What is the risk of so doing? And then the second one, what can we learn about reading scripture and its applicability to us and our needs today from the example of Under Me and Puddleglum's refuting of Rullian's arguments? And then thirdly, why is Plato's allegory of the cave so very relevant for our culture today? What myth about reality are we in danger of believing? And what is the result if we do so? How can we resist this dangerous temptation? And then fourth. Glum and the children display a remarkably deep faith in Aslan and the signs, putting their lives on the line in so doing. What is the result of their obedience, and what might have happened if they had disobeyed? What can we learn from their example about following God's word? So with that, let me say a prayer for us, and I will let you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful story. But Lord, we thank you even more for the truth of which this story is a shadow, the truth that is your word, the truth that is your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn uh, from the wisdom that is contained in this story, and that through that, we would be drawn more and more into your kingdom and its values. We thank you for this time together and pray that you would go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Make sure to pick up handouts on the way out.